Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast contains references to suicide that may be disturbing to some listeners. It's Friday the 12th of June, 1953, a cold night in Melbourne, and in the city's criminal court, James Robert Walker is waiting to hear his fate. 42 years old, he's a big guy, both tall and wide, and he looks smart in his double-breasted suit. Walker is handsome in a worn-out way, with slicked-back dark hair, wide blue eyes, and deep dimples on either side of his small mouth. Given his American accent, picked up in the past decade working ships out of New York, New Orleans and other US ports, if he was going to be played by a Hollywood actor, the role would probably go to Robert Mitchum. But Mitchum would have to be doing his film noir villain thing. That's because James Robert Walker isn't a good guy. The Crown's case is that on the 17th of March, St. Patrick's Day, in Barclay Street, St Kilda, Walker cold-bloodedly shot and killed a fellow criminal. It isn't in doubt that Walker pulled the trigger of his sawn-off shotgun at least four times. He admits as much. Witnesses have testified that they saw it. But Walker says the shooting wasn't murder, that it was self-defence. He claims the dead man was a notoriously violent thug who had a 22 caliber pistol and that this man fired first. For five days, evidence has been heard and now, just after 8.30 on this cold Friday night, having deliberated for more than four hours, the jury returns to the courtroom. The verdict? James Robert Walker is guilty of murder. 
In Victoria at this time, such a conviction automatically triggers the death penalty. Mr Justice Gavin Duffy orders Walker to stand. The judge asks, Have you anything to say before I pass sentence upon you? Walker says, No, sir. The judge hands down the sentence. You shall be taken to the jail whence you came. At a time prescribed by the authorities, you shall be hanged by the neck till you are dead. But Walker, the judge, the jury, everyone present, they all know he won't hang. That's because in the decades since American GI serial killer Eddie Leonsky got the noose for the Brownout murders, only one Victorian murder case has resulted in executions actually being carried out. And with Labor recently elected to government, it's unthinkable that Walker will swing because the party has promised to abolish capital punishment. Justice Duffy is expected to recommend mercy so state cabinet can commute Walker's death sentence to life imprisonment. But now, in court, Walker does have something to say. He asks for and is given permission to speak. Walker starts by thanking the judge, the jury and the prosecutor. He says to Justice Duffy, I have been found guilty of a vicious crime. I understand this will go to Cabinet. I ask you to recommend the death penalty be carried out. It's a shocking moment and newspapers all across Australia will report it as unprecedented for a convicted criminal to ask to be hanged. Six weeks later, the Victorian government will reject Walker's request and say he's to spend the rest of his life behind bars in Melbourne's Pentridge Prison. It's a decision these authorities will regret when it results in Walker committing a violent outrage and recording his reasons for this outrage in one of the most extraordinary criminal confessions ever published. I'm Michael Adams and this is part one of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's Most Vicious Gunman. In 1954, the same year that James Robert Walker became a household name for what he did in Pentridge, Mark Brandon Reed was born in Melbourne. From his teen years on, Mark was a violent thug, his victims usually members of the criminal underworld. By the early 1990s, Mark, who revelled in his nickname Chopper, was infamous thanks to his series of best-selling memoirs about his life and crimes out on the street and behind bars. In books like Chopper from the Inside, Chopper 2, Hits and Memories, and Chopper 3, How to Shoot Friends and Influence People, he even admitted to numerous killings for which he'd never been charged. These yarns formed the basis for the terrific year 2000 film Chopper, which confirmed this charismatic killer as a folk hero. Yet, what's forgotten is that, from preying on Melbourne criminals and striking fear inside Pentridge Prison, to claiming unsolved murders in shocking confessions that enthralled Australia, Chopper was merely following the playbook of James Robert Walker. 
Unlike Chopper, whose childhood was marked by neglect, abuse and institutionalisation, little Bobby Walker came from a loving home and had every chance as a kid. He was born on the 21st of October 1911 in Lang Lang, a small town about 45 miles southeast of Melbourne. The youngest child, he had seven sisters and two brothers, but grew up without a father after his dad was killed on active service in France in 1917. Despite being a war widow, Walker's mother had the means to raise her kids well enough that he had a good education at Brighton Road State School, then went to Brighton Technical College before finishing at All Saints Grammar School in Windsor. Walker wasn't a great student, just scraping by on his subjects, though he was a handy sportsman. As he reached adulthood, he towered over his peers, reaching 5 foot 10, big at a time when the average height was about 5'5". This size helped him pack a punch, and Walker was free with his fists, a self-described mean, vicious, tough street fighter. That put him at odds with his family, respectable people doing everything humanly possible to make him an honest citizen. After graduating school, Walker did try to stay on the straight and narrow, studying to be a wireless radio engineer and working various jobs in Melbourne for two years. But he was more interested in hanging around with hoodlums, chasing girls and haunting pool halls than earning a salary or thinking about a sensible future. Keeping a regular job like a regular Joe wasn't any easier after the October 1929 Wall Street crash triggered the Great Depression. But now Walker did find his true calling one afternoon at the Flinders Street tramway stop. He later wrote, This was the job I had been looking for. I was my own boss. I worked when I wanted to work. No one could fire me. Walker had begun his career as a pickpocket. He worked with two mates, them taking turns as lookouts, divvying up their ill-gotten gains in a three-way split. When Walker found out that one of his partners was cheating him and the other bloke, it taught him the adage was true. There really was no honour among thieves. As for the treacherous mate... He learned a more bitter lesson when Walker beat him black, blue and bloody. Business-related violence aside, Walker's life was good and he spent his cabbage, that was the underworld slang for cash back then, on wine, women and song. He recalled, I was at my best, drifting and floating like a nice big bubble. That bubble burst in October 1930 when two cops caught him on a tram trying to steal from a woman's handbag. In his cell awaiting court, James Robert Walker, that big, tough 19-year-old, he sobbed at the shame he'd brought on his family. Yet they staunchly defended him, with his beloved mother pleading with the judge that he was a good kid from a good home who'd come good given a second chance. Walker got that chance when the judge gave him a then hefty £20 fine, which his mother paid. That she did that, and did so much else for him, made him feel bad. 
just not bad enough to actually change his ways. Walker recalled, I showed my appreciation by being a Jekyll and Hyde. Within six months, his continuing criminality saw him cop two more fines, one for loitering with intent, the other for being a suspected person. And then, in September 1931, Walker was caught thieving again. This time, he got six months with hard labour in the big house. That was Pentridge Prison. Apart from a jail fight which saw a week tacked onto his sentence, Walker did his time quietly and, upon his release in March 1932, he vowed to never again be a pickpocket. As he walked from the prison gates, he was met by his mother, who greeted him like she was seeing him just after he'd finished a day's work rather than after half a year spent as a jailbird. Back home, Walker's bedroom was just as he'd left it. His wardrobe was filled with cleaned and pressed clothes and no one mentioned the big house, but rather his family celebrated his return with a cake whose iced decoration read, Welcome Home. Being on the receiving end of such love only deepened Walker's growing self-loathing. Despite wanting to be good, he felt he might have been born bad. He couldn't figure out what made him tick. But Walker did remain true to his vow not to return to pickpocketing. Instead, he went into the shop-breaking game. He put it this way, smash and grab, payroll snatches, anything that produced the good, clean, crisp stuff that was necessary to my way of living. And his way of living was the high life. While many young men were on the depression breadline, Walker's pockets bulged with bricks. That was crime slang for £10 notes. And he spent his days and nights gambling, hanging out with shady sheilers and knocking back beers like there was no tomorrow. Walker's associates at this time included a very clever, financially generous, smooth-talking and cashed-up gentleman he'd only refer to in his confessions as The Brain. The Brain, Walker wrote, remained aloof from the criminal underworld while also being fascinated by and involved in its machinations. Walker said he never once saw The Brain commit an illegal act, not even lay an SP bet, but the brain acted as a mentor to men like Walker and even mediated their underworld disputes. To hear the brain tell it, Squizzy Taylor and Snowy Cutmore were only dead because he'd arrived too late to calm them down. Though Walker liked and respected the brain, there was this one time he almost killed him. It happened like this. The Brain was on holiday in Sydney and Walker surprised him with a gun and ordered him to drive them to some coastal cliffs. For the next two hours, The Brain proved the truth of one of his favourite mantras, that the tongue is mightier than the sword, by talking Walker out of putting holes in him and dropping him in the sea. And just to show that he had no hard feelings, the brain drove Walker to the shops and bought him a double chocolate ice cream. 
Walker never explained what was behind this almost assassination. As we'll see, if the brain was the target, it could have been related to women, gambling or any one of a number of underworld feuds. Whatever the reason, double chocolate ice cream or not, the incident had to add an air of mutual suspicion to their future dealings. Walker's other close friend at this time was a man he'd refer to as The Thing. While Walker was mates with both men, The Thing and The Brain were engaged in a feud. That's because The Thing had accused The Brain of seducing his girlfriend. The Brain had then allegedly responded to this slander by hiring a gunman to shoot The Thing in the leg. While Walker never named him, The Thing was almost certainly his friend, the former bookmaker Herbert Adams, who, in case you're wondering, is no relation to me. Adams had been shot in the leg in St Kilda on the night of the 22nd of April 1933. Police said they believed he'd been targeted because of a dispute over a woman. Following the code of silence, Adams refused to say who'd shot him, but police suspected a thug called Johnny Devine, a crim walker did refer to by name, saying he was loyal to the brain. In a later court case, Adams also admitted that shortly before being shot in St Kilda, he'd on two occasions had words with Alf King, one of Australia's leading bookmakers and most extravagant punters. This, as other parts of this episode will show, makes it, if you'll pardon the pun, a good bet that Alf King was the man Walker called the brain. Just after midnight on the 20th of September 1933, Walker was at a two-up game at an underworld hangout called Muttony Burke's in a laneway between Burke and Little Collins Streets. He enjoyed a winning streak and, as he was leaving the club, found himself threatened by a couple of punters, Daniel Hossack and James John, whose money he'd just won. They tried to shake him down for a brick. But Walker wasn't giving these hoods £10. He wasn't giving them anything. To get away, he ducked into a Burke Street cafe with the thugs circling outside. At a table inside, Walker saw a crim he knew and told him what was up. This bloke slipped him a 25 caliber Colt automatic, saying he reckoned he might need it when he made his exit. Packing what Underworld characters then called a rod, Walker strode back out onto Burke Street. Hossack and John confronted him. Walker told them to back off because he had a gun. Hossack laughed in his face. Before he knew what he was doing, Walker pulled out the rod. Hossack screamed and Walker fired, hitting Hossack in the butt as he dived into the cafe. James John ran for his life. After the shooting, Walker went into smoke which was slang for going into hiding. Wounded and in hospital, Hossack followed the crim's code by telling the police nothing. But that didn't mean Walker was out of the woods. He heard on the gangster grapevine that James John planned to shoot him. In fact, this guy ran his mouth so much that it seemed all of Melbourne's coppers and crooks knew what he had in mind and the reason for it 
revenge because Walker had shot Hossack. Knowing that John went to the Palestine Club in Exhibition Street, Walker staked out the joint. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. After 1am on the morning of the 22nd of September, 1933, John left the Palestine Club and walked up into Fitzroy with a mate, not realising that Walker was tailing them in his car. As the men parted ways on Gore Street, Walker overtook, parked his car and waited. James John ambled along, whistling the recent Cole Porter hit, Night and Day. Walker jumped out of the car, holding his hand up to cover the lower half of his face and fired the Colt automatic. And he kept on firing. Here's how he remembered it. The rod kept barking as I held the squeeze on the trigger and followed his slow, twisting body to the ground. He got the lot. Seven. Dominus Vobiscum. That's what Walker reckoned he'd said. The Latin for, the Lord be with you. He also involuntarily crossed himself, professing to not know why, except maybe it'd mean forgiveness from God. Walker, who fled the scene in his car and went into smoke, later said his only regret about this, his first murder, was, I'm sorry he died so quick. But James John didn't die that quickly. After Walker roared off in his car, John's mate ran back, the police arrived, and the terribly wounded man was rushed to Melbourne Hospital, where he then bled out from gunshot wounds to the neck, back, abdomen and thighs. The method of his execution led to headlines invoking Chicago's gangsters. Here's how Brisbane's Truth newspaper headlined their story. Put on spot and riddled with bullets, shot after shot fired into writhing body, ugly drama of chagrin, hatred and bloody murder. Walker's feud with Hossack and John was well known, and so he was the police's prime suspect in the shootings. That gave him two choices. Stay on the run for good, or take his chances with the law. Walker, the gambler, chose the latter and turned himself in to the homicide squad. Grilled for several hours, he denied his involvement. Nevertheless, he was charged with shooting with intent to murder Hossack, and held in Pentridge for the coroner's court, which would also inquire into the murder of James John. At the inquest into Daniel Hossack's shooting, the court heard expert evidence that the gun used to shoot him had also been used to murder John. Hossack testified that he had argued with a man on Burke Street, but that it definitely wasn't Walker and he hadn't seen who'd shot him. Other witnesses were similarly vague or forgetful. Then there was witness Henry Mitchell. Mitchell had initially told police he was at the races at Mentone the day after James John was shot when he was approached by Walker and Herbert Adams. Adams said, 
Do you want to earn a hundred quid? Mitchell asked how. Adams told him he had to get rid of a gun and tell the cops that he'd seen Walker and Adams in central Melbourne getting off a bus from St Kilda at the time that James John had been shot. Mitchell agreed to get rid of the gun and to provide this alibi, but then Adams stiffed him by only giving him £10. Interrogated by the police, Mitchell set all of this out in a statement, but now, at the inquest, he said he'd made it all up and that he'd never even seen Walker before. If so, it was interesting that he just happened to imagine Walker in the company of Herbert Adams. When Walker himself spoke at the inquest, he had all the answers. He admitted to arguing with Hossack, who'd demanded money, but said he'd walked away and been in a pub drinking with mates when Hossack was shot. Then, when John was murdered, Walker claimed he'd been in St Kilda in the company of a married woman he refused to name in order to preserve her honour. After that interlude, he returned to the city on a bus, just as Mitchell had initially claimed, even if he now said he'd fabricated that account. Despite how thin all of this was, it worked, and James Robert Walker walked free. He'd gotten away with his first murder. A month after the inquiry, in December 1933, the brain's mate Johnny Devine, suspected of shooting the thing, asked Walker if he wanted in on a lucrative insurance job. All they had to do was steal saddles and other gear from a horse trainer out in Caulfield. The man and his family would be out. It'd be simple. Walker was interested. It'd net both men £75, which is about $7,500 today. But he was also increasingly suspicious. Why did Devine, who he barely knew, want to split the payoff with him when the job was so easy he could pull it off himself and keep all the cash? Was this actually the brain using Divine to get payback for that almost assassination in Sydney? Fittingly, given this was an insurance job, Walker insured himself by packing a rod when Divine picked him up in his truck on the night of the 7th of December, 1933. As added insurance, Walker also got a mate in a car to tail them, in case he needed backup. As they parked outside the horse trainer's place in Caulfield, Walker told Devine he had a gun and laid out his suspicions. Walker asked Devine if he was packing. Devine said he wasn't. Devine told him he was being paranoid. Just because Devine and the Thing were enemies didn't mean he and Walker couldn't be friends. Devine said Walker was welcome to search him. So Walker patted him down and Devine didn't have a gun. Feeling a bit silly, Walker was just about to sit back in his seat when it occurred to him. He reached into the driver's door pocket and there his hand found a big 45. Before Devine could use it, Walker shot him in the neck. Then his gun jammed. Devine staggered from the truck. Walker gave chase, firing the 45, but missing. He caught up with Devine, now weak from blood loss, as he tried to climb a fence. Walker emptied the man's own 45 into him at point-blank range. 
Walker's mate had panicked and burned off in the getaway car, leaving him to hot-foot it through backyards, jump on a train at Caulfield Station to Flinders Street and drop both guns into the murky waters of the Yarra River. Remarkably, Johnny Devine survived and made it to Melbourne Hospital, where he was put under police guard to protect against a follow-up attack. Even so, Devine refused to tell the cops who'd shot him. Walker didn't know who'd set him up, but he didn't seem to think about it too much. Not even a week later, Walker pulled off the most brazen job of his career in broad daylight and in the middle of Melbourne's classiest business district. Having cased Hardy Brothers, a jewellery store on Collins Street, Walker let his beard grow and on the 12th of December 1933, he donned old work clothes and wrapped a brick in paper so it looked like a packed lunch. He strode up to Hardy Brothers at 10.30 in the morning and used the brick to smash the plate glass shop front window. Walker scooped up trays of diamond jewellery and ran for it. What he hadn't counted on was the bravery of Melbourne citizens, with two men tackling him as he tried to get away along his pre-planned escape route. Walker fought them off, diamonds flying in all directions before he got away with a few thousand pounds worth of loot. The bulk of the scattered jewellery was scooped up by Melburnians who then handed it back to Hardy Brothers. In Walker's telling, he jumped into the getaway car of his partner, changed into his good clothes, went to a barbershop for a quick shave and within 20 minutes was outside Hardy Brothers admiring his own handiwork amid citizens as they tut-tutted at how flat-footed Melbourne cops were. The brazen nature of Walker's crime and the inspiring honesty of Melburnians ensured the story made the newspapers across Australia. Though he wasn't publicly identified as a suspect, Walker reckoned the cops had a good idea that he was responsible and that he'd shot Johnny Devine. As 1934 began, someone was still trying to kill Walker. On the 2nd of January, a passing motorist found him unconscious by the side of a remote road on the Mornington Peninsula, the burnt-out wreck of Herbert Adams' car not far away. Walker was taken to Frankston Hospital where he told staff he'd been driving towards Melbourne when another car ran him off the road. His vehicle flipped into a ditch and he was lucky to have been thrown clear with only minor injuries, otherwise he would have been incinerated. Walker checked himself out of hospital against medical advice and before the cops could arrive to question him. But not long after, he was arrested for loitering with intent. Seeing his chance, Walker escaped from the police car. He vamoosed to Sydney, where he adopted the alias John Cooper. But Walker, as Cooper, didn't lay low. He robbed more places, he said, than he could remember. On the night of the 21st of March 1934, Walker and two accomplices did a smash and grab on a gold shop in Elizabeth Street, Sydney and sped off in a car with Victorian licence plates. A brave witness followed them in his own vehicle, hailing Detective Sergeant Jack Delaney, who then caught the trio red-handed with the loot. 
When Detective Sergeant Delaney was questioning this John Cooper, who was also wanted in Sydney for an assault in which he'd smashed a beer bottle over a man's head, a Melbourne copper on a visit happened to walk in. Well, if it's not my old friend James Robert Walker, this policeman said, before telling his Sydney counterpart everything he knew. On the 19th of April, at Walker's trial, Detective Sergeant Delaney told the court, Cooper is a very notorious character and is undoubtedly one of the worst gunmen Melbourne has. Delaney outlined Walker slash Cooper's escape from police custody in Melbourne and the murder and shootings in which he was suspected. Walker was sentenced to two years in Long Bay Jail. A week later, Walker was brought to court again from prison to answer the outstanding assault charge, but the victim didn't appear to testify. As Walker was being taken back to a holding cell by a warder named Horder, he gave this warder Horder a shove and made a mad dash for freedom running along the exit corridor and straight into the arms of three of Sydney's finest. This escape attempt earned him another six months jail. Sydney's Truth newspaper announced Walker to the world in its 13th of May 1934 issue. Their headline was, Youthful Thug is Jailed, Desperado's Career, Vicious Gunman. The accompanying article set out his Sydney gold robbery and attempted escape convictions and Melbourne police's belief he'd recently been responsible for one murder and two shootings in their city. The article, which included a handsome photo of Walker, noting he was, quote, physically the most worthwhile specimen in gangland, said he had, quote, the extremely doubtful honour of being classed by the police of two capitals as one of the most vicious gunmen in Australia. Walker did his two and a half years in prison. There, he said, he was in trouble constantly. His biggest trouble quite literally, was a fellow jailbird known as Big Jerry because, well, he tipped the scales at 250 pounds. Big Jerry, real name George Thomas Lynch, was a veteran thief, basher and gunman. Walker reckoned he'd cross Big Jerry in jail and this Sydney thug vowed to get him. In late 1936, after Walker and Big Jerry had been released, they wound up in the same pub in Moor Park in Sydney. Before they could get into it, the police raided the place and Walker saw where Big Jerry stashed his gun. While Big Jerry was being hassled by the cops, Walker retrieved this weapon and after the police left, he pulled the piece on its owner and humiliated him in front of the whole pub. Big Jerry apparently now told all of Sydney he was going to rub out Walker. And it looked like Walker was about to buy the farm when he looked up from his table in the early hours of the 17th of September 1937 at packed Kings Cross nightclub Top Hatter's Cabaret and saw Big Jerry and a handful of his goons walk in. With Big Jerry and co plotting his imminent death at a nearby table, Walker said he was tipped off that his would-be murderers had stashed the gun they planned to use under a coat on a seat. The place was heaving. There were more than 200 revellers on the dance floor, but Walker couldn't help that. He grabbed two empty beer bottles and rushed towards Big Jerry's table. 
Walker smashed one bottle across the head of a minion and hurled the other at another henchman. As he and Big Jerry tussled, Walker grabbed the hidden gun, which he said was an antique double barrel pistol, and fired both bullets. One blast hit Big Jerry in the thigh, the other put a huge hole in his abdomen. Walker recalled, Big Jerry Lynch crashed louder than the Wall Street Stock Exchange in 1929. With only one goon between him and the exit, Walker knocked him out cold with the butt of the gun and, after politely retrieving his coat and hat from the terrified cloakroom attendant, ran down the stairs and escaped into the King's Cross night before hiding out around Manly. The newspapers were filled with headlines saying this gangland shooting was just like Chicago. While Walker worked on his tan, Big Jerry lingered in hospital, refusing to tell the cops who shot him. He wouldn't even tell his own mother, saying only, I'll even up with him when I'm alright. But Big Jerry was decent enough to tell the cops that Tommy Duvall, mistakenly charged with the shooting, wasn't the man who'd pulled the trigger. Four days after he was shot, Big Jerry died from blood poisoning. His funeral in Taylor Square, Darlinghurst, attracted thousands of people and caused traffic jams. At least Tommy Duvall walked free when the case against him was dropped. Having gotten away with his second murder, Walker celebrated by robbing a Randwick bookmaker of £3,000 and heading north to Coolangatta for a well-earned beach holiday. On his way back south, a month later, Walker robbed a Lismore jewellery store. What he got was caught, scoring another two and a half years behind bars. In sentencing, as reported in Grafton's Daily Examiner, the judge commented on Walker's record and future this way. You are going back to jail for an offence entirely similar to one for which you were convicted four years ago. When you come out, if you consider doing such a thing again, think of how you were caught in Lismore. Have a look at your record and ask yourself, what have you got out of crime? Walker actually seemed to take those words to heart. By the time he was released in August 1939, Walker had spent half of the past decade behind bars and he wasn't even 30 yet. Now he reckoned he was a changed man, that he'd reformed, that he was going straight. But the next time Walker was seriously crossed, his dark nature, his Mr Hyde, would return with a vengeance to seek vengeance. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. Subscribe to make sure you get the second and third parts of this episode later this week. In the meantime, I'd love you to help spread the word about Forgotten Australia by leaving an iTunes review and telling a mate or two or ten about the show. You can learn more about James Robert Walker and other stories at the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast and at the website ForgottenAustralia.com. This podcast was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. 
Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.